I'm so glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I've got great news if you're trying to save for your grandchild's college. Let me say that again, grandchild's college. Spit that out, Clark. Also, I'm going to talk about the Facebook data breach, what it means to you. So for years, I have cautioned grandparents that do most of the savings for college for grandkids much more than parents are able to save for kids. Because parents, let me tell you, they're in the weeds. They've got all those expenses of paying for their kids, saving for their own retirement, paying their mortgage or rent, and all the various demands on their money. And if their ambition is to have a kid go to college, it's a precious few parents that are able to save for a kid's college without hurting their own retirement. And as you've heard me say, your highest priority is saving for your own retirement because kids can pay for college a number of different ways. Number one is they go to a cheaper college. Number two, they work. Number three, they got scholarships. And as a last option, they can borrow some amount of money, but never more in total for a degree than what you're likely to earn the first year on the job. That should be the cap of what you borrow. The highest we've ever heard from somebody who borrowed money for undergraduate, graduate, and then a professional degree was they had over $600,000 in student loan debt. Can you imagine? People go to dental school often will graduate with $400,000 in student loan debt. You wonder why when you go to the dentist, Krista, <laughs> the bill is so high. Yeah. They should just fess up on the bill that 40% is for student loans <laughs> and the rest is for the dental care. So the best way is if there's money saved up front. And that is what falls on a lot of grandparents. Now, think about this. We were just talking in our podcast yesterday about grandparents that don't have any money. Today, I'm talking about grandparents that do have money. There are any of a number of people who are older, who have grandkids, who are living fine, and they want to do something for those precious grandkids. Well, I've thrown cold water on it for years because... The way financial aid has been calculated over the years is that when you have a 529 plan owned by a grandparent that uses that money for the benefit of a grandchild, it hurts that grandchild's financial aid profile, where money from a parent in a 529 account used for a child's college expenses has virtually no impact. But everything I've said over the years is no longer true with this fall's class of college because now the rules have changed under the federal student aid program, under FAFSA, there is no more trap 
when a grandparent owns a 529 for the benefit of a grandchild. Because how stupid was it anyway? I remember a call we had probably in the fall from a grandparent who says, you know, I know you said that I shouldn't own it, but well, I don't trust my son or daughter-in-law with the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had another call from someone where it involved an estate and they did not want the money. They wanted the money for their grandkids' education, but they didn't trust the children to handle the money. And so these become very messy situations. And so, no, now you don't have to worry about that anymore. A grandparent can own that 529 for the benefit of the beneficiary being a grandchild. And see, the cool thing, if you got a bunch of grandchildren and one of them decides that college isn't for him or her, no problem you just change the beneficiary designation to another grandchild, totally a tax-free event. So it's a great, great way to fund college because the money grows tax-free. Now, let me tell you how you can mess up a 529 account. Go to a commission salesperson to set it up. So let me tell you when you should ever go to a full commission stock brokerage or a bank to set up a 529 account. Never, 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 not ever. Never. Not in any circumstance should you ever go to any commission salesperson ever for a 529 account. You can end up with less money than what you put in for the benefit of that child because not only or the full commission stock brokerage plans such a ripoff that not only do you pay giant fees up front, but the fees on the accounts are so outrageous that they can outrun the investment returns. So the tax-free benefit becomes useless. You want to go with what's known as direct sold plans only. And I will have revisions to my 529 account plans the recommended plans the best plans i'll have that for you early summer at clark.com at clark.com but my current uh plan guide is still overwhelmingly accurate at clark.com of the good plans the good i only have the great i'd say the excellent the great and the good and so you stick to those your money's going to be efficiently working for you. But again, never, never buy a plan from a full commission stockbroker, ever, or a bank, unless you hate your money, hate your wallet, and don't really want your grandkids to have much to pay for their college. Krista? Rick in Connecticut says, what are the best and most efficient loans for a parent and child to take out to pay for college? Everybody's thinking about that now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I am. time of year. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, Krista, just like my daughter, my middle child, mm-hmm. so my oldest went to a very affordable school. My middle child and your oldest uh, picked 
about the most expensive colleges in the United States to attend. (laughs) Yes, they did. So your daughter decided to follow you as, uh, do they still call it a leg, a legacy? I don't. Anyway, she is going to the great Boston College. That's right. Go Eagles. And so very competitive, very difficult school to get into. And uh, each year costs about what a Maserati costs. (laughs) No, more like a Ferrari. Uh, No. 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 Okay. So Remember Rick's question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look at you. <laughs> Let's you're go back to, to Rick. You're so nervous. Why are you nervous me talking about Oh, no, Claire's it's fine. College? It's just, you know, it's a lot oh, of money. you're nervous about paying for it? Of course, no. It's fine. I've actually it. saved a lot thanks to you. I don't have to be really worried about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, throw the compliment so I'll stop focusing on you. Yep. Right, so. Works every time. You start with the uh, federal money first. You want to do the... Um, the money you qualify for as student borrowing, and then to supplement that, the parent plus loans. The parent plus loans are not the most favorable rate-wise right now, but historically they are. The advantage of being in the federal student loan program is you have borrower protections that don't exist with private loans. After college, if you have a pile of loans, you may have an opportunity that if you're not worried about the borrower protections, where you can borrow at fixed rate from private lenders at very favorable rates if you have a really good credit score. But you always start with federal borrowing. Andrew in Florida says, I'm a 54-year-old divorced father of three, but I'm remarried with two stepchildren. After a difficult divorce five years ago, my total savings in retirement was about $20,000. I make a six-figure income as a physician, but I pay a significant amount in permanent alimony. My question is about helping my oldest son pay for law school. He will finish undergraduate with about $20,000 in debt, maybe less with with government loan forgiveness. He wants my help to pay for law school, yet my retirement isn't even close to where I need to be. I don't expect I'll be able to retire before 70, if then. I live quite frugally, so any money I give him means less money invested in my retirement funds that are already way behind. So what is my best option? I'm not really sure this will be affordable, and it's an unfortunate casualty of the divorce, and I feel bad for him. Andrew, this is a terribly difficult situation. So I don't want you to feel guilted into shortchanging your own retirement in this case. So what I recommend in a circumstance like this is that you help your son with law school cost based on what tuition is for a state university law school. If uh, your son goes to a private law school, your financial support would be capped at what state tuition is. The cost of state tuition for law school probably is not enough to throw you too far off your path of saving for retirement. But don't Dig yourself that hole of paying for whatever law school your son decides to go to. I think it's perfectly reasonable to offer a parental subsidy based on what state tuition would be versus what a private school would be for law school because it's night and day different. Tim in Georgia says, hey, Clark, I've heard you a few times in the past few months say to consider skills and knowledge that may be outside of a career job position That opened my mind to broaden my horizons and apply for a job outside of my perpetual frustration day job. 
I applied for an opening as an engineering technician for materials and I got the job. I start next week. Along with a thank you, I have a question about furthering my education. If I'd like to start taking classes eventually to get an engineering degree in this field, where do I start looking for affordable and legit online schools? See, I'm, I'm really excited for you. That is great. So there are a lot of free classes you can take online, but they will not lead to a degree. But you do have the alternative now, and part of it is amplified because of how education is pivoted because of the pandemic, of attending engineering courses that will lead to a degree at a state university or state college. Often, if you take courses online at the college level, state college level versus state university level, in state, your tuition will be extremely low. And who knows? Your employer may really need those engineering skills and may offer you a subsidy for the tuition. And something that uh, we've not addressed the new rules on employer subsidy of we're going to education. All right. I want to go into that in depth, but there's a teaser here. There are new educational benefits available through employers for college, for attending uh, not just college, education and training for your benefit. Why don't I address that on tomorrow's podcast? Yep. Next, I want to talk about the Facebook data breach, that there's lessons in it for all of us but action that needs to be taken by anyone who has been a Facebook user. It's crazy. You know, I talk about all the issues with Facebook spying on its Facebook users. And I've talked about the civil war. It's not a civil war. It's a war between Apple and Facebook with the new rules going into place where you are going to be able to restrict what Facebook is able to do with your information on various Facebook applications like WhatsApp and Instagram and, of course, Facebook. But this time, Facebook is the victim and you are the one who has to deal with the consequences. Because this is kind of hard to believe, but there was a data breach that involved more than half a billion people around the world and huge number of 100 or so million in the United States. And uh, one estimate is that I'm wrong, that it's only uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 million Americans. That's a lot of people, only 30 to 40 million Americans among the total number, although nobody knows exactly the true total number. Here's the problem, though, is that the criminals got a lot of personal information. They got your phone number. They got your full name. They got your email, not just the address you use there, all the email addresses you have, where you live in full, and full biographical data on you. And so when a breach like this happens, it's like, so what do the criminals do with it? They have it for sale now. So people can buy your information to engage in a variety of fraudulent activities 
the the low hanging fruit is to apply for credit as if they're you because they got everything they need to apply for credit as if they're you. And by the way, I need to remind you: don't celebrate your loved one's birthdays <laughs> online. Everybody it's like the does best part it. Part of Facebook, it's so fun I'm to sorry. see all the messages and yeah, it's so awesome. It, it, is it going to be awesome when somebody? Pretends to be you and... No. Okay. I'm just such a killjoy, aren't I? No, you're not. You're right. I know you're right. I know you're right. You know I'm right, but I'm wrong too. No, the criminals are wrong. Okay. But anyway, if you are a Facebook user and you have not frozen your credit, you are laying yourself wide open right now to having to deal with a multi-year mess of identity theft. Freeze your credit. Go to Clark.com slash credit freeze. You'll see how easy and quick it is and free to do it. And then what it does is it locks down your credit so that a criminal cannot apply for new credit as if they're you. It makes no difference or effect on your existing credit. Here's the other thing, though. In this case, the criminals have enough information on you to mess with you. So let's say, let's forget criminals for a minute. Let's say there's somebody who has a grudge against you. Maybe somebody you used to date or whatever. They can go buy this information on you, impersonate you, and cause problems for you. I mean, it is, if there's weird stuff that suddenly posts as if you did it or said it or whatever, you need to be aware that this is a problem. And the core of the problem is not the criminals. As you pointed out, Krista, the criminals are the bad guys. But the core of the problem is we don't have security as a principal architecture of how the internet works. And so each website is responsible for trying to protect the information it has. Hackers are determined, some of them are very sophisticated. And they'll work it till they find a vulnerability. Do you know it's one of the reasons, not uh, although privacy is great and you know I'm into it, one of the reasons we collect almost no information on you when you subscribe to one of our newsletters or whatever at Clark.com or Clark Deals is we don't want to be vulnerable to your information. If we were ever hacked, we don't want criminals to have deep information on you that they could use. We're not interested in having that information to use like Facebook or these other places do to make money off of your information. We just want to be there as a resource to teach, to, to empower you. And so we don't need to collect all that stuff. By not collecting it, we don't create a vulnerability for our systems or for you. And so when you are a business or a website or whatever, think through why you're collecting the information you're collecting. Why are you asking the questions you're asking? And what risk and embarrassment are you causing for yourself, for your business, and what financial harm are you potentially causing by collecting so much personal information about people who want to do business with you because you're laying it out on a silver platter. The more you collect, the more you become a fat target for a crook who wants to engage in theft of information, identity theft, or whatever. 
Okay, Brandon has a question that's about security in a different way. My vehicle was mildly damaged in a hit and run, but our camera caught the offender. A police report was made. I know the name and address of the offender since the company name was displayed. Given the minor damage, no dents, and the fact that I only have liability on this 2002 vehicle, what's the best resolution? I fear my deductible would exceed the repair cost. Is it small claims court or my, is my insurance a better option to get the offender to pay and avoid costs myself? Brandon, the great news in your story is there's a 2002 vehicle. Um, so it's fully depreciated out. Uh, second, there was not significant damage. Third, uh, wow, the cameras. Think about cameras catching people doing good and bad things all the time. Uh, suing in small claims court is an issue of time more than money for you. Uh, since you know the offender... Why don't you send them a note and say, you know, the police already have your information. This is the cost of the damage to my vehicle. Would you please send me a check to pay for it? And just keep it simple like that. I know it's weird to be polite with somebody who did a hit and run, but politeness in this case is better than going to court. Rinaldo in Massachusetts says, I purchased a washer-dryer combo from Costco in April of 2018. I didn't get an extended warranty. I used my big bank credit card. Recently, the dryer, which has all the fancy sensor-driven settings, stopped working. My understanding is that Costco will take anything back in return. My question is, am I left on my own to try to fix this three-year-old dryer? Am I asking too much of Costco? So this is an ethical question. You know, Costco... Uh, doesn't take back electronics anymore for an unlimited period, but pretty much everything else they will. Uh, to take the washer back, washer-dryer back, I imagine Costco would take it back, but I do think that that is not really fair or right to do in this case. Having purchased from Costco you get an extension automatically of the manufacturer's warranty for two years. The credit card you used may or may not have an extension of manufacturer warranty. It is a real advantage to getting the Costco credit card that has no annual fee because that usually gets you a meaningful extension of warranty time uh, that Costco provides for buying from them and then using their card. In your case, I know it's hard to find repair people right now, but I'd see if you can get an estimate on repair. And gosh, I hate to say it with a three-year-old unit. Hopefully it can be repaired because buying a new one in these um, prices that we have that are higher elevated for appliances right now would be pretty ugly. So it's really your ethical choice. Yes, Costco would take it back and give you your money back. But you have to decide if you're okay with that from an ethical standpoint. This is from Nate in Wisconsin. Clark, my daughter is my oldest, and I made her an authorized user on my credit card when she was 17. Now she's over 18, and we got her her own card. I plan to take my credit card back from her and not take her off as an authorized user just yet to allow her credit score to grow a little more. 
My question is, now my oldest son is 16. Would it be better for me to make him an authorized user on my credit card like I did for her or have my daughter make him an authorized user if I would be helping her with the credit card through college? My card has a $30,000 limit while hers only has a $1,200 limit. So actually uh, do for him what you did for your daughter. Add him as an authorized user on your card and that's the right way for you to build credit. Uh, Don't do that with your daughter, particularly if your son starts charging some, you're going to mess up your daughter's ratios, which is the percent of available credit that's being used. So I would not do that. And I want to thank you so much for being a part of Team Clark. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe, review us, and share us with your friends.